there's probably just as much need for poets in today's world of conservation as there are needs for biologists. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome back to the public podcast that is coming to you from a private school with a zoo, the Rasafari Podcast. That's right, y'all. We are here for part two of my visit to the Trevor Zoo at the Millbrook School. And I am really excited to bring you not one, but two kind of mini interviews. I guess we could call them minterviews, as I have done before on this podcast, uh, with some additional people from the Trevor Zoo. First off, you are going to be hearing from Tiffany Hatfield, a former student who still does work at the zoo. And then you will hear from Dr. Alan Toussaint, the director of the Trevor Zoo. Now, this is obviously the second episode of a two-part series, so... um. If you haven't listened to the first one yet, which I released on Tuesday, then go ahead back and listen to that and then hop on back over here. I'll wait, I promise. So before we get to the interviews, I wanted to start off by sharing some kind of interesting things that I learned about the Trevor Zoo uh, on my day there. First, and perhaps most importantly to many of you, there are some live webcams that you can access at millbrook.org to see what some of the animals at the Trevor Zoo are up to. This includes their red pandas, and in fact, when I got to meet the red pandas, I had multiple people reach out to me to tell me that they were watching the panda cam and saw me on there and recognized me from the podcast. That cracked me up, y'all. That was awesome. The other thing that I wanted to touch on was a little bit of the history of the Trevor Zoo, because uh, it's, it's kind of cool how it all got started. So Millbrook School in 1936 was looking for their first ever biology teacher. A gentleman by the name of Frank Trevor, hmm, may ring a bell, Trevor Zoo, Frank Trevor, pulled up with a, I believe, station wagon is what I was told, and uh, interviewed for the position. After his interview, the then president of the school walked Frank out to his car, and he noticed that in the car were a bunch of aquariums and boxes that you would use to transport animals. The gentleman said, hey, what's all this? And uh, Mr. Trevor smiled and said, well, if you hire me, this is your zoo. And from those humble beginnings launched the actual Trevor Zoo. It started off as one building, a building that is actually still on the grounds, and has expanded to the incredible zoo that it is now. The zoo has been AZA accredited since 1989 and maintains that accreditation, which is just amazing given that most of the people that work at the zoo are high school students, as, as you know and have heard a little bit about now. All of the students at the zoo have to do something called community service, which is just what it sounds like. 
And uh, they're able to pick what they want to do from their second year on. But in the first year, they all try all the different community service things, meaning that most, if not all, of the students that go to Millbrook School end up working at least a couple of times in the zoo. The 70 or so students who decide to continue on and actually work at the zoo regularly are known as zooies, which is just awesome. On the day that I arrived, I actually got to see a bunch of first years doing their community service at the zoo. It was quite interesting watching a 14-year-old boy be taught the proper way to handle and transport a tortoise while others were cleaning the exhibit. Student curators, as well as the adult people that were supervising, adult people? I broadcast regularly. Goodness gracious. Eh, I'm leaving it in. I kind of like it. Anyway, the student curators and the adult people who were supervising everything did an incredible job of making sure that the students that were doing community service all knew exactly what they were doing. Communication and responsibility were really, really high on the priority list here. I'm not going to lie, when Dan Cohen, the director of media, told me that I was going to get to see about 70 high school kids running through the zoo doing work... I was a little nervous, Um, even though they're AZA accredited and even though I have heard nothing but good things, that just seemed like a scary image to me. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was a bunch of people who really cared about each other and the animals working hard as a team to ensure the best quality of life for those animals. It was really awesome to see. Every year, some of the senior students get to attend the AZA conference, either virtually in times of COVID or not. Um, And just it's just cool to see that this zoo really does it right. Even though these are high school kids, they are treated in a really special way. They are given responsibilities. They are taught great leadership skills and they're taught amazing animal husbandry. Whether these experiences end up leading to these people becoming zookeepers or conservationists or, you know, accountants, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's going to impact their personal views on conservation and on saving the planet. And that is incredible. Teaching them young has been a huge theme in season two. You've heard it a lot. And I don't know that there's a place in the world that does it better than the Trevor Zoo at Millbrook School. So let's get to it, shall we? But first, an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. 
For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, y'all. So both of these interviews that are coming your way uh, were recorded live at the Trevor Zoo. However, I was using my handheld recorder because we were wandering the zoo at the time. The first interview with Tiffany actually happens in the commissary where she was working on diet prep. She was able to step away from working on the diet prep, but it's still a commissary. It it, it was loud. You'll hear some background noise. And then my interview with Dr. Toussaint was wonderful and and very informative uh, and also happened right by the big pond where a bunch of the waterfowl lives. So you're going to hear some of that. Uh, Not just them making a lot of noise, but also uh, the interview may get interrupted by a particularly adorable animal. Eh, You have to listen to see. So without further ado, here are my interviews with Tiffany Hatfield and Dr. Alan Toussaint of the Trevor Zoo. Awesome. So uh, tell me who you are. I'm Tiffany Hatfield. I uh, was a student at Millbrook School, which owns and operates the zoo. So I attended community service. I started volunteering here for the summer program when I was a kid, and now I'm working part-time during my college years. That's awesome. And where do you go to school? I go to Penn State. I just finished my uh, junior year in animal science. Awesome. Very cool. I am a Penn State alum, so yay. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) So very cool. So um, how old were you when you started doing stuff at the zoo here? Um, I was 12, like about to turn 13, so right around there. I like how you say about to turn 13, as though like 13 is a normal age to be working at a zoo. This is incredible how cool all of this is. Uh, what was it like as, as such a young kid getting to actually do stuff at the zoo, and what did you do at that age? It was really cool. I went to a local middle school here, and everybody was always talking about like, oh, when you like turn 13, you can go work at the zoo. So it was a really cool experience. I took full advantage of it. Basically, you got to follow the staff around and counselors, which are usually high school students that are a leadership position, and you get to go feed all the animals and take care of them with everybody else. So it's really hands-on. It's not just like getting to set up enrichment or something like that. You get to do pretty much everything under supervision. That's just incredible to me. I just, I love that so much. Very cool. Um, And then when you actually started here as a student, um, what kind of stuff did you spend your time doing? So as a student, the zooies get to come down and do community service at the zoo. So it's essentially kind of the same thing the volunteers and counselors do. You got assigned an animal. You got to take care of that for a semester. Nowadays, the students get to see the whole zoo. So it's a little bit different from when I went to school here. But I got to do that and then climb the leadership chain again, where um, instead of becoming a counselor in the summer, which I also did, I got to become a student curator. So then you get to take care of a whole section of the zoo and watch the zooies and make sure all those animals get fed. And then my senior year, I got to become a head student curator where I got to kind of oversee an even bigger section and almost the whole zoo as a student. Uh, and I also did a bunch of different science projects as a student. So the academic side, which is a little bit less fun sometimes, <laughs> uh, I actually took a course called Animal Behavior, which our director, Dr. T, teaches. And that was a really cool experience. And then my culminating experience for seniors, which is our big CES project, was on designing and seeing if we could potentially house snow leopards here. So building an ex- a snow leopard exhibit and also seeing if it would affect our red pandas because we have such a great breeding program. We want to make sure we don't stress them out too much. So I got snow leopard scents and stimulants from the Cape May Zoological Society. Um, so it consisted of feces, urine, and fur. And I put that in a little container and then gave it to the red pandas. 
And every day I would test their, um, or I would collect feces, and then eventually I tested their corticosterone, which is a stress hormone. And at the end, it actually turns out they were less stressed when we gave them the Snellford stimulants. It was another form of enrichment for them, so they were actually more interested in that than anything else um, compared to the baselines. That's awesome. And um, I get it because I'm a fanda. But can you explain to my audience why you thought snow leopards might upset red pandas and where that project came from? Yeah. So snow leopards and red pandas uh, have a similar habitat. It's not quite sure how much it overlaps, if at all, really, because snow leopards are more of a higher elevation, whereas the, um, the red pandas will live in the bamboo forests. So there's a potential that snow leopards could prey on red pandas. So we wanted to make sure there wasn't a prey-predatory response because sometimes animals can have a natural instinctual reaction like um, a dog versus a squirrel and stuff. Um, so we wanted to make sure we didn't stress them out too much because that might inhibit the reproduction. And again, you, you did this project as a high school student, right? Yeah, so that was my senior year of high school. Ridiculous. Now, you, you've realized, I'm sure, since leaving here that your experience is unlike what you could get anywhere else, right? Yeah, it's it's amazing, which is why I keep coming back. I love this place. I owe everybody here so much. And it was a really, really cool, unique experience. I love that. So what's your goal? Well, I'm currently doing animal science, and then I'm hopefully going to apply to grad school soon for wildlife fisheries or wildlife conservation, something around that. So hopefully keep pursuing research and different types of things helping wildlife. Awesome. I love it. Uh, what animals did you work with when you were here? I know you said it kind of bopped around a lot, but like, what was your primary focus? I got to work with every single animal here a lot. So I got to see everyone almost every day sometimes, especially over the summer when I was here working as a staff member, getting to do everything. But um, primarily, I did a lot of training with a few select species, so I got to spend more time with them. That would be um, our lemur species, so the ringtail lemurs and the black and white rough lemurs, our red pandas, which... I'm a little partial to, too. Nice, um, nice. All right, we can then, be friends. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> uh, our bobcat, the otters, and um, when we had coatis, I worked with them, too. Oh, coatis are so cool. They're fun. That's really awesome. Um, who was your favorite animal while you were working here as a student? I realize you're still here, but, you know. Um, my favorite animal was probably Zhu, our male red panda. He, I got to go to the airport with some of the staff and we got to pick him up. Oh. So I watched the whole transition from being afraid of us to not coming up to us at all, to me going there almost every day, giving him treats, trying to build trust, and then eventually getting him to come up and eat out of my hand. So I was kind of like the, I want to say I was the first connection he made with somebody here. And that really meant a lot to me. So that's still translate to him being my favorite. Yeah, no, makes sense to me. Um, so, okay. Last question. Uh, I want you to go into this a little bit. So we all know that high school is hard and is a, is a tough time. I mean, for anyone, what was it like having zoo animals as, as part of that experience? What effect did that have on you as a student? It was really great during a lot of my free time. And when I had a free period, I would come down to the zoo just to hang out or see the staff too. But it was really unique because a lot of times when you have a free period, you know, you're just going to go sit in a classroom and study or work on schoolwork. But when I was working on some of my schoolwork, I got to come down and sit with the red pandas and give them treats. And it was a great way to de-stress. My favorite moment, actually, of all of this was during a finals week. I was really stressed out. And, of course, everybody's worried about being you know, relaxed and trying to get through that. It's a, it's, it's a rough time high school finals. So I got to come down and we actually had eight week old fox kits that had been orphaned. <laughs> so it was, it was really tough having to come down and sit with those guys for a couple hours and cuddle them. 
but it was a great stress reliever. And I mean, where else can you do that at high school? Yeah, no, that's that's really amazing. You know, as as your podcast goes, we are the only uh, zoo, AZA accredited zoo, that you know operates on this model. Right. Um, you know, we just had our board meeting, and I don't know if this name will mean anything to you or not, but Tom Lovejoy. Yeah. Is, yeah. So he's one of the one of, if not the leading biodiversity sort of world conservation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he graduated from Millbrook. Oh, nice. Uh, in 59. And so my unstated but real true goal operating the zoo is that we uh, stimulate the mind of whoever's going to be the next Tom Lovejoy. That's awesome. Um, and I always say, you know, we may already have, I don't know. but Right. Um, but that, you know, Tom got to Millbrook as a young fourth form or a third form boy a freshman had no idea what he wanted to do and he said within a week or so of working with frank trevor at the zoo and taking his class i knew what i was going to do for my life that's amazing and that's what he's done <laughs> so uh, i love that kind of thing we're a, it's very hands-on just like you can see with our dance program it's not you know it's not uh sit in a class or or just stay in the in the dance the, uh, studio theater studio or theater studio, studio. uh and uh you know we're going to run you through a typical series of moves we're going to go out and you're going to experience nature and you're going to really push the boundaries and the limits and you know do it in a in an organic hands-on way and i that just drives me i think that's cool <laughs> yeah no i think that's really awesome so how long have you been at the zoo so uh, I've worked at Millbrook for 31 years, or I'm in my 31st year. Um, that uh, actually spans a little bit longer. I started in 1984, worked for three years, and then went off and did my PhD. And then I came back ostensibly just as a fill-in for one year. Been here ever since. <laughs> um, so yeah, I started in 84. Um, my my academic world has been really funny. So I grew up in upstate New York, up near uh, the Canadian border, near Plattsburgh. Okay. Um, I went to public school. Uh, from there, I went to Vassar, unheard of in West Hazy. Wow. Um, and then from uh, Vassar, I did my graduate work at the University of Texas. So <laughs> I've had, you know, kind of every educational experience out there and then you know on the on the adult side i've spent my working life here at millbrook school in a different type of school setting but realistically only here for that long and at this particular school because of the zoo right so so the thing about the zoo and this was really frank's belief too the zoo is a tool you know it's really cool to have these exotic animals and they're fun for us adults to work with and they're certainly fun for the kids to work with but they're a tool to get kids to understand the bigger picture of nature and conservation and uh you know what their role in that is um we all uh you know bring to the table different skills right and we're trying to help them see and realize especially in today's world um now that we're part of aza that this business of conservation has changed over the 
over the eons. And we're now in greater need of a greater diversity of conservation efforts than ever before. Right. So it doesn't matter so much if you are not, you know, a big animal uh, poop shoveling lover. <laughs> you know, you might be a poet. And there's probably just as much need for poets in today's world of conservation as there are needs for biologists and on down the line. Right. So that's the the, the real piece of this thing is uh, if you're going to be in the education business at a high school, I mean, we, we do education with the public, but it's it's not as much of a focus as our uh, efforts with our students are. Right. Because what we we hope and what we feel is that because we have them as a captive audience, pardon the pun, <laughs> um, we can push them even more and harder and farther than we can the public. You know, most of the public that comes, we're going to see them once, maybe twice. Uh, the best of the best of them, we're going to see multiple times throughout the year, but literally for an hour at a time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there will be some some great uh, uh, long-term uh opportunities that come out of that but for the most part they're coming to enjoy a nice day and we're hoping to have a little impact in their their thinking process about uh the natural world but our kids you know we're really hoping that we're getting to drive the message home and and it's going to stick with them and resonate throughout their lives whatever they do you know we have one young lady who uh was a big zooey here she spent all four years in the zoo uh she did a, a tour for us uh uh, with Dan videoing uh, of the zoo and, you know, just was completely involved in the zoo. She went off to college and, um, you know, she wrote back at one point, basically, Dr. D, I'm really sorry, but I've chosen, you know, not to go into uh, a zoo field. And I'm like, well, first of all, you know, Lucy, that's okay. Yeah. You, know, you, you, <laughs> right. you, you, you have to choose a career that makes you happy. But so what, but what she said, and she went into economics, but what she said was, but I want you to know that I've taken what I've learned and I'm applying it because I'm going into the field of green development, green uh, economies, the uh, the ways that countries can uh, help make things more sustainable, et cetera. I'm like, that's a perfect outcome. <laughs> yeah. um, I'd much rather actually you do that than become a zookeeper. Right. right. Um, you know, your your skills are probably going to do more to solve uh, big conservation problems than uh, if you were to become the Bronx's greatest lemur keeper, (laughs) you know? Uh, And so kids, sometimes their perspective is a little bit different and a little, you know, limited in scope until they go off and do that. And she's been amazing. You know, she's now uh, been uh, in front of world congresses and uh, uh, several big uh, organizations looking at bigger picture conservation kind of stuff. Trying to figure out what that crane is doing up there. So, so this crane lost her mate uh, over the winter. Um, he was a 40, 49 year old, 40, almost 50 year old. I can't remember if he actually made it to 50 or not, but almost 50 year old crane. They weren't a uh, breeding pair, but um, but she's a little distraught. So I don't know if she's out looking to see what else is possibly out there or. Uh, just exploring the the area because we pulled them off early uh, winter to take him out of harm's way just Mm -hmm. because of his age. Um, And we knew it was getting close and we were going to have to decide whether to euthanize him or not. And 
uh, the extent of the beaver work was not there. So this is a whole new world for her. We, we've just put her out here for about a week now. And so she's really been all over the pond exploring things. Um, and I think trying to make sense of it all. That's another big, you know, part of our teaching tool with the students is to, uh, at least from my perspective, is to always get them to go back to trying to think with empathy for the animals. What is the animal experiencing? You know, we think we've created a space that's great. Well, how is the animal interpreting that space or that experience or whatever it is we're trying to uh, accomplish? Right. You know, what is their experience in that? And it, that's that helps the kids realize that it could look pretty, but it might that might be meaningless to the animal. You know, it looks great for us. Right. We, we like what we've done or whatever, but that may not be what what works the best. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. That's one of the things that I've uh, I found interesting was one of the zoos that I interviewed has one of the best sloth breeding programs <laughs> of, of any zoo. And um, where they house their sloths, each one has a, a carrier and some tree to get down to the ground, like some branch. And that is it. <laughs> yeah. You know, some water, some food, obviously. Right. But none of the cutesy, cool stuff you see in sloth exhibits everywhere. But those sloths are so happy and so comfortable <laughs> that they are breeding like rabbits. Very yeah. slow rabbits, but rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's because that's what they need as opposed to, you know, where a lot of zoos, like you said, might worry about, oh, we want this to look pretty. We want the public to think that they're happy. Right. And then the sloths aren't breeding. And you're right. like, why? You know, well, <laughs> yeah. maybe they're distracted. I don't know. Yeah. But it, it no, is really interesting. No, exactly. And, and you know, I've I've had the, the joy and privilege of going to the Amazon uh, twice now, once with a, a, something called Project Piaba, which would be a great thing for you to interview uh, some people about and, and uh, see the, what the work they're doing. But, uh, and also with Tom Lovejoy uh, at his project in the, in the Amazon. And, you know, the Amazon from the, from the air, you see all the photos and stuff, looks beautiful. You get down on the ground, it looks like any other dense woods. There's bugs, there's, there's mud, there's, you know, it's, and, and you're like, ew, ew, ew. You know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. So, you know, what we perceive as beauty sometimes comes from a way back camera shot that, you know, uh, looks pretty cool. Right, but, right. But there's different experiences there. And the same thing with animals. You know, you very seldom see in the big National Geographic shots and all this a big pile of poop. Right. And yet that's part of every one of those animals experiences. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that that piece is, uh, you know, is an interesting dichotomy within AZA. We're always trying to look great for the public, but it doesn't always mean that that's what's great for the animals. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so we we're always looking at that here in the northeast. Of course, we experience winter. So, uh this time period I hate. Well, actually, we're getting close now because the green. Finally, spring has popped a little, and we're starting to get some color. But for weeks, from you know early March to April, it's warm enough for people to really enjoy walking around and stuff. But it's brown and muddy and dirty, and, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, oh, I hate this time of year. Um, and yet, you know, I see the little kids. They don't even see the mud. They mm -hmm. see the animals, and that's what they're looking at. You know, so, you know, oddly, for example, this mesh we just put in this year, and it's because now that we have a few resident Canada geese, 
Canada geese, as you may know, are basically lawnmowers. Yes. And so these two hillsides have been nothing but mud for the last couple of years <laughs> because without this fence here, the geese just walk up and they mow the lawn. Right. And they mow it right down to zero, which is why this hillside looks like it does. So the next step is going to be to actually put a little bit more fencing in here. They don't need to come up here and mow it down. Right. Uh, I would, wouldn't mind if they mowed down some of the nettle, but they <laughs> don't seem to find that very appealing. <laughs> uh, not surprisingly. So, you know, it's always that interesting dichotomy between, uh, you know, what is good for the animals and what they would love. And they right. love coming up here and being out of the water and a nice place to nibble the grass, etc. But at the same time, we're trying to make a spot that's not too muddy, not too, you know, too uh, off-putting to uh, our visitors or, right. or even our students. The, you know, one of the things that, that is always true at every AZA Zoo is, you know, we know that the animals and the beauty of nature are our hook to get people in so that we can then try and teach them uh, something about nature, something about the environment, conservation, etc. But it doesn't work if they're not in the door yet. Now, interestingly, of course, that's shifted a little bit with the pandemic because all of us uh, have been doing more online programming, more, uh, more uh, digital uh, educational material. And that has attracted a different, a different crowd. I think Dan was telling you a little bit about our early forays into broadcasting cameras. Mm -hmm. And it amazes me that we still have a, a uh, there's a guy and he's in England and there's a woman in, I can't remember if it's Denmark or, some, you know, somewhere over there, uh, who one of them watches our pandas and basically, you know, says, hey, I noticed the pandas didn't have any bamboo this morning. Is there a reason or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> You know, that's how intently they're, right. they're watching. And they send me an email. Uh, primarily, I get them because mine's the first email that pops up on the on the Trevor Zoo <laughs> website. And then uh, we have, uh, when, when we have great blue herons nesting, we have people literally all over the world watching these great blue herons. <laughs> uh, and, and that's when you know that, you know, you have some, some power and, and ability to, uh, you know, tweak the, the experience and message out there for folks. So, you know, we hope we're doing it uh, well. And Dan's been a great help with that because uh, his expertise and, and uh, you know, real dedication to perfection, right. uh, you know, means we're putting out a pretty high quality product, despite being probably the smallest by budget and, and very close to the smallest by size AZA Zoo out there. Yet we're able to uh, put out a pretty high quality product in that uh, sense, but uh, you know it's it's uh, this is an interesting time to be in the in the uh, zoo world. We uh, we're playing a bigger and bigger role in education as schools get strapped more and more for uh, resources and and uh, ability to do some of these outdoor experiences, etc. But at the same time, we also are facing lots of pressure from animal rights groups, from, uh, you know, people that for the most part at the base uh, understanding are on the same page as us. They want quality experiences for animals and uh, best animal welfare possible. We may not always agree on how to accomplish that. Right, right. You know, sometimes they're like, there should be no zoos. Animals can only be in the wild. 
you know, we're much more of the belief that, uh, you know, these animals uh, help tell a message and, and do some education that actually are going to do greater good and save the, 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 the greater animal population out there in the world. But, you know, that's there's that'll be a debate that will probably go on forever. But uh, but at the as I say, at the base, we all want the same thing. Right. You know, we want absolute high quality standards. And, you know, from my perspective, again, as a small facility, you know, we've spent zero dollars on this pond. <laughs> Not exactly true, but right, essentially right. zero dollars on this pond. And yet I would argue this pond is, uh, you know, ounce per ounce or square foot per square foot. One of the best, most natural waterfowl exhibits you're going to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, same with your otter. Yeah, sa- yeah. Sa- same with the otter exhibit. Um, now, you are probably going to get less of a uh, close-up underwater experience of seeing the otter, but those otters have a almost natural uh, ecosystem in mm-hmm. which they they get to swim and play and catch fish and et cetera. So, you know, again, it's always that that balance between what humans want and, and what is best for the animals and, uh, you know, what the animals want and can we tweak them a little to get them to be in a way that they'll be happy to show themselves uh, to the public. And, uh, you know, our best way to do that is choice. So, you know, we don't lock anything on exhibit. Um, sometimes to the, the annoyance of the public, they say, we've been looking for the wolves for an hour. And of course, right next to them is a screaming four-year-old. And I'm like, well, the wolves can go where they want. And I can tell you, they're not going to come over here. <laughs> I can tell you how maybe you could get them over if you could find a way to appease your child a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily the child's fault. Oh, no, no, I know what you having mean. having a bad day for whatever yeah. reason. Doesn't mean the wolf wants to see it. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, you know, and we try real hard to help people understand that give and take with nature. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, do you, do you go out in nature and expect to see a lot of nature if you're yelling a lot and, and screaming? No. We do. We uh, we do a lot of programming with our third formers, which is, is uh, so we're in the old English system where, Form is is grade. So third form is ninth grade, and that's because uh, it starts at one and two, which is middle school. Okay. But we don't do middle school right. here, so we start with third formers. So um, with our third form, uh, and and we just did one this weekend. We do a a, a lot of outdoor programming, everything from camping to a winter night hike, nice. uh, to uh, what we just did this Saturday is birding. And trying to, first of all, you're getting uh, freshman boys and girls up at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, and you get them out, and it's chilly. And it was actually overcast this Saturday. So they're out on a damp, chilly morning at, uh, by the time they get there, 7 a.m. And then we're saying, okay, now, you got to be really quiet because we're going to hear more than we're going to see. And that's almost impossible. <laughs> but we still saw some pretty cool stuff. The warblers were... We're pretty active and coming through, so we saw quite a few of those. Nice. And, uh, it was. It was. This was a, a pretty good, uh, pretty good year in terms of seeing stuff, but also just allowing them to be third formers out there having some fun. Right. Right. Uh, That's even, really even, cool. Even while they were cold and ticked off a little bit, I was <laughs> getting them out there. But um, so very cool. And just then, our interview was interrupted in the best way possible. So you're looking at one of the culprits of the poop on the deck. Ah. They, uh, they love to come up here and be, uh, be dry and hang out. 
Hey, buddy. What's up? What's up, huh? These are Muscovy ducks. Muscovies are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. That's my pants. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossipari poop story. You know, one of the things that, that is, uh, this is gross, and I, I'll try not to be too graphic, but, you know, like, like anywhere in, the, in any living system, things die. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always say, if you're doing your job well enough, your uh, zoo collection dies of old age. Right. And uh, probably, probably the grossest thing that I've ever experienced was we were doing a necropsy, which is an animal autopsy. And uh, we do them on, on every animal that dies, even if we're pretty sure it either died of old age or we know what caused the death. Right. But you learn things. You know, you learn what your husbandry uh, practices look like inside of an animal. Sure. And, yeah. and it... Uh, you know, is harmless to the animal because they've passed away. So we were doing a, a necropsy on a uh, alpaca. And as you uh, may know, uh, any of the uh, large herbivores, they have uh, big parts of their stomach that are dedicated to digesting all that uh, plant material. And you want to be very careful when you're uh, doing a necropsy to not nick those portions of the stomach because you're looking for other stuff in there. And uh, the veterinarian got a little careless, nicked that stomach, and there was an explosion of gas and material, which went out like a, uh, uh, a, a bomb would, which means in all directions all at once. And so I got my face and my everything was covered and uh, that was pretty gross. Uh, that was, that was, that's probably the grossest thing I've ever done. I mean, that's I've, a good one. <laughs> I've shoveled lots of poop and done lots right. of things, but exploding, uh, stomachs, uh, were, uh, not high on the list. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the flip side of that story is, um, we had a, we have a lot of students that come and they say, I want to be a veterinarian. Right. And sometimes that holds and sometimes that goes away as they learn more about what that means and the work involved, et cetera. But so we had this one young man who said he wanted to be a veterinarian. And that was, you know, so we, we try to pair students up uh, with the vets whenever they're here and whenever the schedule allows for, for anything, for sure. cool things. And uh, we had a red wolf that had a, uh, a broken tooth in her jaw and a little bit of uh, a broken bone uh, part. She had gotten in a, in a tussle with one of her daughters as the daughters were getting old enough to be ready to move out. And... So we're out doing the surgery to kind of repair that. And um, like any surgery, even in the mildest of things, there's always a little bit of blood. And so we're all there and we're looking at the thing and the student is there. And as the veterinarian's doing something and there's a little bit of blood that comes out, the kid that wants to be the veterinarian just goes, boom. Oh, no. <laughs> I said, I'm not sure you're going to be a good choice for a vet. <laughs> uh, he did not go on to be a vet. That was amusing. <laughs> I was like, sometimes you don't have control over every career option you have. Now. <laughs> 
Well, I am incredibly grateful to Dr. Toussaint and to Tiffany Hatfield for sharing their stories with me. And I hope you all enjoyed them because I know I did. Remember, you can find the Trevor Zoo at Millbrook on Facebook and on Instagram at Trevor Zoo Millbrook. And of course, you can check out the website millbrook.org to learn more about this amazing school and the amazing zoo found within. Also, if you would like to hear even more from the Trevor Zoo, don't forget that you can go to patreon.com slash rossafari and sign up to be a monthly patron of the show. For as little as $3 a month, you get bonus content, including bonus audio from episodes, including this one. Special thanks to Lara Shank and PJ Bevan, my two Red Panda level sponsors, but also thanks to all of my patrons. I love you all. And remember, whether you are a patron or not, it's important to know that the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.